All right, let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, what you've given us and the ability to worship here. You know that I've prayed several times today just trying to get this thing started and having hiccups and difficulties and challenges, so we're going to try to do this anyway, and, and I thank you for your people, wherever they are, who will at least be faithful to tune in and to listen. Uh, Father, your word will not return unto you void, so please help us to do well here. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Okay, uh, this week we're going to do something a, a little bit different. We're going to be looking at the church, and what we're driving at is 1 Timothy chapter 3, which uh, we know as the, the qualifications for pastors and deacons. Uh, but we're not going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3 with this message uh, because, you know, I think before we can understand pastors and deacons and the fullness that we should, we have to come to an agreement and understanding of the church and some basic operational themes. So we've been looking at qualifications for pastors and deacons. Now we're going to step back and review uh, what the church is. Um, I think that uh, for the church, we need to know this up front. Uh, I, I want you to know this up front. Absolutely nothing burdens my heart more than the condition of the modern-day church. I am uh, regularly stressed about the condition of the modern-day church. Uh, my children, my finances, certainly not my secular job, not politics, uh, not even the virus that's in our world today, nothing burdens me more than the condition of the modern-day church. The modern-day Christian church in the Western world is in terrible shape. It's, it's in terrible shape. It is filled with unqualified leaders. It is filled with unbelievers who, in some cases, are openly unbelieving, even while remaining in the church. Uh, the modern-day church is not at all convinced that the Bible is true, and thus it is dying. Hear me again. Three tragic problems with the modern-day Christian church in our country, and I would say broader than that in the Western world. Number one, unqualified leaders. Number two, unbelieving and unrepentant members. And number three, uncertainty about the Bible. Nothing burdens my heart like these three things. Nothing upsets me more, and nothing motivates me to work hard in the church uh, more than the reality that the church in our Western world is in trouble. When I wake up tomorrow and I report to the safety zone in Richmond, Indiana, I am doing it because I love the church. And I am in Richmond, Indiana because I love the church here in New Paris, Ohio. I am working to that end because I care about the church and I'm ready to sacrifice and commit myself to doing what's right in one place. It's good that you understand that, that, that you have pastors and people here, and I'm certainly not alone, many of you could say this with me, who are laboring here for the sake of the local church. I am deeply committed to it. You should be deeply and passionately committed to personal sacrifice for the sake of the church too. You should be committed for the sake of the church too. I say this because Jesus is deeply committed to the local church. He gave everything for her. In the book of Revelation, he takes personal possession of her. In Jesus' letters to the seven churches uh, in seven different cities, you can see that he takes full command and full authority, full possession over the local churches. Uh, places like Ephesus, Laodicea, Philadelphia. And I believe that the Lord does the same thing here in New Paris. The church belongs to the Lord. 
In Ephesians 5, verse 25, we read that Jesus loved the church and he gave his life for her. And if you read that passage, you'll see it as a model for how marriage is supposed to operate in Ephesians 5. It's the church whom Jesus Christ died for. According to Isaiah 53, when Jesus hung on the cross, it was his spiritual offspring, the church that he had in mind. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. So let's be clear about this. It is Jesus' church. He has built it. He will continue to build it. The church belongs to him. We then, as people of the church, belong to him. Every letter of the New Testament, from Romans to Revelation, is either written directly to a church or to the pastor of a church. Think about that. The scriptures which we hold sacred and dear to us are addressed and delivered not to individual people, but to the broader church. So, what does the church mean to the Lord Jesus? It means everything. The church means everything to Jesus. He has given everything to buy her. He has given everything to redeem her. And he cherishes her and he will one day bring her home to himself. So I am not alone in my deep love for the church. I am in fact in good company. The Lord Jesus is deeply committed to the church. And I am not wrong to call you to a deep commitment to the church. Nothing is more like Jesus than a person giving everything that he has for his church. Nothing is more like Jesus than a person giving everything she has for her church. That is exactly what Jesus has done. So, if we want to be able to answer that, that uh, question, what would Jesus do, I will answer it for you. He would always do what is best for his church. That's what he does. That's what he has done. That's what he will do. He is her husband. He loves her. He is ready to present her as a bride in heaven. He will do what is best for her, for her even at the cost of his life. If you want to be like Jesus, love his church the way that he did and you will be like him. Now this is why when we see Peter going back to fishing at the end of John's gospel, after the crucifixion, after denying Jesus, and after meddling around with, well, maybe I'll go back into the fishing profession, none other than Jesus shows up on the shore, calls him to the shoreline, and when he confronts Peter, he doesn't say, Peter, why are you fishing? He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I do love you. What a strange thing to ask. And then he looks at Peter and he says, then feed my sheep. Translation, tend to the church. If you love me, tend to the church, care for the church, shepherd the church. Three times Jesus tells Peter that if he loves him, this is what he will do. He will serve the church. He'll not serve himself. He'll not go back to fishing. He'll not go back to secular living. And then the last chapter of John's gospel, Jesus tells Peter, it's going to cost you your life if you serve the church. Do it anyway. You're going to be crucified. Do it anyway. If you love me, serve the church. Nothing is more like Jesus than a man or woman laying down his life for the church of the Lord. That is exactly what Jesus has done. That is how high of a view we should have for the church. Now, I've given a list of three things that I believe are destroying the church today, and I'll repeat it again in no particular order. One, unqualified leaders. Two, unbelieving and unrepentant members. And three, 
uncertainty about the Bible. Now, of the three things on that list, the one that I address every single week is uncertainty about the Bible. You know where I stand on this. I preach from the Bible every week. Uh, even sermons like this one that are not derived from a specific text are based on the foundation of God's Word, and it is flowing with Scripture as I move from paragraph to paragraph. I don't preach sermons like this often, though, because I believe in the power of going verse by verse through the Scriptures. So on Sunday mornings, I preach from the New Testament. In all of our gatherings, we open our Bibles and study. I've been blessed to see uh, um, various groups of people, even in my own home, my children meeting with other people now in this time of quarantine, uh, over Zoom meetings. And you know what they're doing? Even over the Internet, even on these uh, digital meetings, these webcam meetings, with other believers in Bible study, they are opening God's Word. Everything that we do here focuses on a high view of God's Word. The children in this church are led by men with serious Bible training and men and women who are gifted to teach what the Bible says to them. Children education in our church is not playtime or fun time or recess or recreation. It is real Bible training. And you know what? The kids here actually seem to like it because people who genuinely love God's Word love God's people, including little children. And there's nothing that children like more than to genuinely be loved and cared for by an adult who's doing their best to help them. So the kids do well with the Bible training that we do here. And what a benefit it is to have as a foundation the Word of God in a child's life. So we teach the Bible to adults and we teach the Bible to children. I am confident when I say that you will never find a church that takes the Bible more seriously than we do. Hopefully there are many out there that take the Bible as seriously as we do. Uh, we teach the Bible with, with, with as much certainty as we can possibly muster. We believe this is the inspired Word of God. So. Of the three things that are plaguing the church, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here addressing biblical uncertainty with you, but I am going to address the other two issues that are killing the modern-day church. One, unqualified leaders, and two, unbelieving and unrepentant members. Now, in our current study of 1 Timothy 3, we're dealing with the unqualified leaders part, so now we get to the unrepentant and unbelieving members, and that's the issue that I'm going to try to deal with in this week's message. Now, if we're going to understand this problem, then we're going to have to think through this problem together. So I hope that you're not just going to go to sleep. I am pleading with you to stay with me here. We're going to start with three main points, and this will be the structure for the sermon. So three points here on unrepentant and unbelieving members in the church. Point number one, the church is supposed to be the visible image of Christ to the world. The word church in the Bible never refers to a building. We say things like, I'm going to church, or it's at the church, but the church is not truly a place, not the biblical church. The church is a place, uh, the, the church is a people in a place. Now, uh, you can see this, I think, perhaps no clearly than in the book of Revelation. If you want to turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2, uh, you can, or you can just listen. I'm going to mention a few verses here meant to demonstrate that the church is not specifically a place, but a people in a place. In Revelation, while Jesus is giving letters to the churches, this is chapters 2 and 3, seven letters to seven churches, listen to how he addresses the church. Okay, this is Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 begins, To the angel of the church of Ephesus. So the first letter goes to the angel, which means messenger, to the messenger, to the angel, to the one watching over the church of Ephesus. Now right there you see what a church is. A church is not a building because buildings don't have messengers. 
A church is a people, you know? It's a people. It's, it's a people in a particular place. These people were in Ephesus, so Jesus addresses them as the church in Ephesus. Here's another in verse 8. To the angel or the messenger in the church of Smyrna. To the angel, verse 12, in the church of Pergamos. And you can look at verse 18. You can look at verse 1 of chapter 3 in Revelation 2. Verse 7, verse 14. It's all the same thing. So listen very carefully this morning. A person does not go to church. A person might attend a worship service. They may go to a building to do that. But a church is not a place where we go. Now, I'm not going to get mad at you if, I call, if you call this building a church. Uh, that doesn't uh, particularly bother me. I, I tend to fall into that pattern too. Uh, you know, when I say church, it's sometimes code for church building, and I understand that. That's okay. Just so long as we realize, when we really think about how we're supposed to operate together, that the church is not talking about a place. It's talking about people. What kind of people? What kind of people? That's a good question. The people... That the, that the Bible is talking about when we talk about a church, the people are Christians serving the Lord together in a particular place. So to be a part of a church, then you have to be a Christian. What does that mean? You have to be saved. You should be baptized. This is a people who are doing their best to live rightly before the Lord. Now here is from Acts chapter 2, verse 47. Listen to this. The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So from the very beginning, the church consisted of people who got saved and then were baptized and lived in repentance, thus the mechanism by which the Lord added to the church daily those who were saved. That's in Acts 2.38, Acts 2.47. That means the church represents Jesus in the world. When people look at the church... They should see the image of Jesus because the image of Jesus is put forth in those who are committed to Him and who are living before Him in a repentant way. They are saved from sin. They are meant to be disciples now of Jesus. They are Jesus followers. So again, the first point here is the church is the visible image of Jesus in the world. What does uh, Jesus say in Matthew 5.14? He says to His disciples, You are the light of the world. A city that's on a hill can't be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a lampstand so that everybody can seize it, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So there it is. The church is the visible image of Jesus in the world. It is meant to be seen. It is meant to bring glory to God. We're the light of the world. We're supposed to be visible. Another version of this is in John chapter 13, verse 35. Jesus says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. So when other people see Christian people loving one another in the, in the way that the Bible defines what that love should look like, they see the love of Jesus presented. They associate that with the person of Jesus. We are called to be the visible image of Jesus to the world. Now, this is also why we are called to holiness and righteousness and humility and repentance because even though we're sinful people, we are saved from our sin and we are supposed to be doing our best to live holy lives to the Lord. If we are the visible image of Jesus to the world, that should not be a sin-filled, unrepentant, rebellion, visible image of Jesus because that's not who Jesus is.
The church, as the visible image of Jesus to the world, should model righteousness and holiness. Which brings me to my second point. The church is biblically required to maintain its holiness by a process we call church discipline. Point number one, we are the visible image of Christ. Point number two, as the image of Christ, we are to maintain holiness through church discipline. Now this should be no surprise to anyone. I mean, it's very basic stuff. Frankly, uh, th this is true in any well-functioning group. The group is maintained through discipline, any group. If you joined the Army and you went to boot camp and your drill sergeant told you, uh, listen guys, we're going to get up every morning and we're going to run three miles. First week of boot camp, you get up with everyone and you run your three miles to start your day. Uh, one day though, you wake up and you say, you know, I've been doing this three mile thing for a while. I don't feel like running this morning. I don't care what they tell me. I am not going to run. I am sick of running. I don't think we should have to do this. I'm not running anymore. Now, I've never been in the Army, but I'd imagine that when you communicate that to your drill sergeant, when you tell your drill sergeant, I'm not running, he's going to have a particular reaction from that. It's not going to go over real well. You see, the Army, through its chain of command, is going to compel you to, well, we might call it, repent. Turn away from your stubbornness to change your mind and run. This might involve a lot of unpleasant stuff happening to you or to your training unit. I don't know the process of repentance that the Army takes, thankfully. But before long, you're going to have everybody calling on you to repent because nobody wants to suffer the consequences of one rebellious person. And if you still refuse to run, no matter how much everyone pleads and prods and tries to manipulate you to do it, do you know what's going to happen? Is the army going to lower their standards in order to accommodate your lazy behind? Are they going to say, okay, we're going to have a new special rank in the army, a rank for people who refuse to run. That way, that way Reggie can stay in the army uh, even while uh, neglecting all of his training. Is the army going to do that? Of course not. You know what the Army's going to do? They're going to kick your sorry butt out of the Army. You're not going to be in the Army anymore. Uh, they, they might even press charges. I don't know what they're going to do, but I know this. They wouldn't let you stay in the Army if you're not going to run because the Army has standards. And you see, that's the key. And the Army happens to believe that the standards that they have are important to uphold. And when people are not willing to uphold those standards, they are not allowed to remain in the Army. Now, the the same is true for workplaces, the same is true for sports teams, the same is true for just about any group. You try to go to work and not comply with any of their regulations. You know, go to a place of business and decide, you know what, I'm not going to wear a shirt, and I'm not going to wear socks and shoes. Most places, that does not qualify as their standard. You're not going to last long. Try to be a part of a sports team and decide, you know what, I don't feel like I have to go to practice. Most teams are not going to let you get away with that because there are standards in groups and discipline is how those standards are remained are maintained. Such is the case for the church. Now, listen to me. This makes perfect sense. God has told us in the Bible what is sinful. He has made it clear. And in situations where a certain behavior is, is, is a little foggy, if, in a situations where there's room for grace and mercy, Christians are not to practice judgmentalism and condemnation. But when something is clearly sin, the church has to adhere to God's standards, just like a person in the army has to adhere to the military standards. A person in the church has to adhere to God's standards. And you say, well, nobody's perfect. What happens when a person sins? Because, of course, they will. The answer is repentance. 
Listen to how this works because this is great. God has a built-in mechanism for dealing with people who mess up. And here it is. If I lie to my wife this afternoon, that is sin. And when I am found out, what I'm supposed to do is acknowledge my sin before my wife, ask for forgiveness. She is commanded by God's word to forgive me and move on the best I can, faithfully trying not to sin again. Now, that doesn't sound too complicated because God is merciful and God is gracious to His people and He has already dealt with sin. Because I am a Christian, the standard of experiencing sin as a Christian is repentance in the face of sin. If I lose my temper and I explode in a group of people and I'm yelling and I'm angry and I, I ram my fist right through a wall, I may not be qualified to be a pastor anymore, but I can be a Christian even in the midst of that sin. And that is sin, by the way. The Bible says we're not to have outbursts of wrath. So if somebody makes me angry in public and I just blow off and I, I just do this incredible amount of stuff that, 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 that brings you know, everybody shock and dismay at, at how I'm behaving when I'm angry. You know what? When I ask forgiveness for that, the people in the church are commanded to forgive me. They are commanded to restore me to a right relationship in the middle of them. So really this is very easy for me because they have to forgive. There is no penance that I have to pay. I mean, if I punch a hole in the wall, I guess I should patch the hole, but there's no penance that I have to pay in order to achieve forgiveness. I can't achieve my forgiveness in the first place. The Lord Jesus has died on the cross. He's died on the cross to forgive me of my sins. People have to accept my, my, my plea for forgiveness and restore me to a right relationship. So, this is not hard stuff. It shouldn't be hard because Jesus has paid for my sin on the cross. I'm simply called to admit my sin, ask for forgiveness, and go back to trying to live righteously as best I can because the church has standards. I should try to live up to those standards, standards laid out for us in God's Word. But, and here's where it gets hard. If someone has sinned and they are not willing to admit their wrong and ask for forgiveness, we've got a problem. Because they have committed to living righteously before the Lord. And the righteous thing to do when you sin is admit it, ask forgiveness, and try to change. That's the standard for a Christian. If they aren't willing to do that, they are like the guy in the army who refuses to run. And the church is not allowed to shrug their shoulders and lower their standards and brush it off and to let that sin go on openly just to accommodate the friendship of somebody who refuses to repent. Now, you need to see this for yourself, so if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 18. We're going to see specifically a small portion of Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. You need to see what Jesus commands the church to do, because otherwise you might not accept this, and you have to accept this. This is not optional. If there is a chance in the world that we're all going to wind up on the same page here, then you need to understand this. So these are the words of Jesus in Matthew 18, verse 15. He says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained a brother. Now that's just like I said earlier. You know, if I sin against someone, okay, and, and, and they catch me in sin, uh, if I sin against Pastor Steve and I do something wrong, you know, then Pastor Steve comes and he says, Hey, Reggie, you know, you've lied to me. I found out you've lied to me. This is how you lied to me. This is what you said, and it wasn't true. And if I listen to Steve, if I admit my sin in that alone one-on-one -on -one conversation, and I ask him to forgive me, then we're done. He forgives me. Nobody else even needs to know about it. 
And, the, and Jesus says here, if he hears you when you tell him his sin, you have gained a brother. It's done. It's done. I don't have to go and make it up to Steve. I mean, I'm sure I would feel bad about it. But I don't have to go and, and you know, take him out to dinner or buy him a gift card or, or, or call him ten times to assure him about how horrible I feel. Jesus has paid for our sin on the cross. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So other people in the church are commanded to be forgiving as well. So it's done. That's it. So Steve tells me my sin. I repent. No one else even needs to know about it, and it's over. Okay, that's if we follow the verse 15 path. Okay, but here's verse 16, Jesus says, If he will not hear you, if he won't listen to you about the sin that he committed, then take with you one or two more, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So Steve comes to me, he says, Well, you know, you've lied to me, and I say, Well, I don't care. You know, Steve, you should have known that what I was saying wasn't true. You should have known that I was bending the truth. And I don't think what I said was that bad. I, you know, don't come here, you know, expecting some apology out of me for that. So I'm not repenting at all. Steve confronts me about my sin, and that's how I respond. You know, I'm not going to apologize. I don't, you know, leave me alone. You know, this is none of your business. Mind, don't judge me. Well, then verse 16 kicks in. Steve grabs two people. He comes back with them. And he says, gently, according to Galatians chapter 6, Reggie, You've lied. I've told you this. You've, admi you, you know, you've admitted that you've lied. You're not even disputing that. You know this is wrong. This isn't right. You need to apologize and stop this. You need to repent and turn away from this. Now, the reason for the two witnesses coming with Steve in this scenario is for the next step of the process. Because if I still do not do the right thing and humble myself and ask for forgiveness, those witnesses are Steve's evidence that he tried to handle this privately. And clearly, I am in the wrong here. If I repent, and if I tell Steve, now that he's accompanied by two guys, look, guys, you know, I, I'm sorry I didn't listen to Steve earlier. I see you, you, two, you two here, and I, and I hear what the three of you are saying to me. It was a bad day. I was a jerk. That's no excuse. I, I know I was wrong. I'm sorry. Let's just let's put this behind us. I need to do better. This isn't going to happen again if I can help it. I don't want to be this way. I'm sorry. You know, then we're right back to the same thing. It's all over forgiveness. It doesn't go beyond those three people and it doesn't go beyond the Steve and the two guys that he brought. It's done. It's, it's, it's thrown away. The Lord Jesus has already purchased my forgiveness. I don't have to make up for all the bad stuff that I've done to human beings, okay? But if I still won't repent now that Steve has returned with these two witnesses, again, the church has standards. And Jesus says in verse 17 of Matthew 18, if he refuses to hear them, Steve and the two people that he's brought, tell it to the church. If he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So the third step here is for the church to be made aware of what's going on. And if that won't compel repentance, then that person, me in this scenario, me in this illustration, that person cannot be a member of the church anymore. This is not allowed to just go on undealt with publicly, unrepentantly, without anybody pretending, everybody pretending as if nothing's wrong. This is incredibly important. When Jesus says, if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector, he does not mean treat the person badly. Jesus didn't want his disciples to treat people badly. He wanted his disciples to love their neighbors and to love their enemies. That's what he tells them. So he doesn't mean, let them be to you like a heathen and a tax collector, treat them bad, you know, really, really punish them. That's not what he means. 
When he says, let them be to you like a heathen and a tax collector, he means do not consider them, do not treat them as if they are a part of the church. Heathens and tax collectors are not repentant sinners. That's the idea here. They are not repentant sinners who experience forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ. They are unrepentant. They continue on with their tax collecting. In Jesus' day, that was robbing people and taking more than they should. It was synonymous. Heathens are people who, who have you know, no care whatsoever for the instruction of God's word. So when he says, let them be to you like heathens and tax collectors, he means do not pretend that they are part of the church. Don't treat them like brothers and sisters in Christ. That's church discipline. That's the command from the Lord Jesus. So, there is supposed to be a distinction between the believers who are saved, baptized, and living repentantly, and the unbelievers, heathens and tax collectors, tax collectors again, representing unrepentant people, who are not saved or not living righteously before God. There is supposed to be a clear distinction in the church between those two groups. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. I want you to see how Paul applied this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here Paul is going to deal with something very public, uh, something very sinful that someone is apparently doing in the Corinthian church, and everybody apparently knew about it, and the church refused to act. Man, I've heard of stuff like this, of someone cheating on their wife, and everybody knows it's going on, and, and he comes to church and he sits right over there, and nobody deals with it. And Paul runs across something very similar to that in 1 Corinthians 5. They've, the, the Corinthian church has known that this sin is going on. They haven't done anything about it. So 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is going to expedite the process because churches are absolutely not allowed to blatantly ignore church discipline. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such, such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. So, this guy Paul is talking about living in this adulterous relationship with his, with, with his uh, father's wife. Paul's talking about a guy who's living in this adulterous relationship with his father's wife, and nobody says a word. Nobody deals with it. It's just gone neglected. They are puffed up, Paul says, meaning they're really proud of the way their church is going, despite the fact that right in the middle of their assembly, there's this person doing this incredibly wicked thing that even unbelievers would balk at doing, sleeping with his father's wife, and nobody's kicking him out of the assembly. Now, I don't know why they were puffed up. Maybe they thought, well, you know, we have a really good uh, children's ministry. And look at how many people are coming into the church and hearing the gospel. We're, we're feeling really good about what we're doing here, guys. We're doing a lot of great things for the Lord. We're all learning and growing. And Paul says, you're puffed up and you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. Why? because the ministries they were doing weren't having any effects? That's not what he says. Because there is a blemish in the holiness that's supposed to be represented in your character and assembly, in that this sin is, is going on unrepentantly, and the church, which is supposed to model the visible image of Jesus Christ to the world, is instead this joke of sexual sin that's gone on undealt with that even pagans know shouldn't happen. 
You should be removing this guy from your church. You should be mourning the fact that you've got to do it in the first place. Paul in verse 3. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, In the name of Jesus, I am commanding you to kick this guy out of the church. That's what the deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh means. He doesn't mean torture the guy. He doesn't mean beat the guy up. He means kick him out. And Paul's hope is that by kicking this person out of the church, he might realize he's wrong, ask for forgiveness, he might repent, and that he might ultimately be saved the destruction of the flesh in the day of judgment. Look at verse 6 and 7. Paul continues, Your glorying, your bragging is not good. Don't you know that just a little leaven leavens the whole lump, just a little blemish ruins the image of Jesus Christ the church is supposed to be. Therefore, Paul says, purge out the leaven. It only takes a little undealt with sin to ruin the reputation here. And the reputation is not important if it's my reputation. The reputation is important, though, if it's meant to represent Jesus. Look at verse 9 here, 1 Corinthians 5. I wrote to you in my epistle, in, my, in his previous letter, not to keep company with sexually immoral people. But I certainly didn't mean with sexually immoral people of this world or covetous people of this world or extortioners or idolaters of this world. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. There are all kinds of sexually immoral people all over the place. But he says, what I meant was, do not keep company with anyone named a brother. Translation, inside the church who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or an extortioner. Don't even eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? You, do you not judge those who are inside the church? And, and, and this is what he's talking about. He, he's saying, it is not my job to judge people who are unrepentant, unbelieving people outside the church. Paul is an apostle, okay, and in this role he's functioning here as a shepherd. And there were shepherds in Corinth who were supposed to be dealing with this. And what he's saying is it is not the pastor of the church's job to go out and try to deal with all the sin that's going on in his community. I mean, he should speak about sin and he should call people to repentance, but it's not, it's not his job to make judgments about sin out in the community. You know, to go around and try to, to, to stir all those people in the community to stop doing sinful things and to not associate with anyone in the community who's going to do something sinful. He says, if you tried to do that, you wouldn't be able to have any relationships with anybody in the world. But, but, in the church, it's a command that you purge out the evil from among the church. We cannot let unrepentant sin go on inside the church. So he says, do you not judge those who are inside Look at verse 13. But those who are outside, God judges. God's going to judge the unbelievers. That is, by the way, an awful, scary truth. The judgment is ultimately hell. But the people who are saved, the people who are inside the church, Paul says he has a responsibility to judge them, and so do the Corinthians, and so do we. 
So he finishes by saying, therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Now, when Paul says that about the church, he is quoting the Old Testament because this is not a new principle. Old Testament, New Testament, unrepentant sinners were not allowed to maintain their place in good standing among God's people. It is the church's job to practice church discipline. If you need evidence, you could turn to Revelation and read chapters 2 and 3. Here's Jesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. He tells the church there, I have this against your church. You have those among you who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. You are letting heretics remain unrepentantly in your church. And Jesus tells them, I'm holding that against you. Here he is in another letter, Revelation 2.20. I have this against your church, Jesus says. You allow sexual immorality. Just like in, Corinthian, in, in the letter to the Corinthian church here, Jesus is telling this church, Revelation 2.20, I have this against you. You allow unrepentant sexual immorality from the people in your church. And Jesus says, I'm holding it against you. Jesus in Revelation chapter 3, verse 2, he tells another church, I have not found the works of your church perfect, but you have some among you who have not defiled themselves. In other words, Jesus, who holds the churches in his hands, who holds our church in his hand, who can snuff it out in a moment. Jesus is paying attention to what's going on in a church, and the Lord Jesus himself demands church discipline. Now listen to me. This is a statement that could be made about churches all over the Western world because church disciplines, church discipline is practically practiced nowhere. Practically no one is ever removed from a church in the Western world. I mean, you have to do something heinously evil to get yourself officially removed from a church. And so what you end up with in the Western world are massive amounts of churches where sin does not get dealt with at all and the Lord is not pleased with it. This wasn't okay in the Old Testament. It wasn't okay in Matthew 18. It wasn't okay in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. It wasn't okay in Jesus' letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. And it is not okay today. The Lord demands that His people maintain holiness in His church through church discipline. So, part one, the church is supposed to be the visible image of Jesus. Part two, the church is required to maintain its holiness through church discipline because it is the visible image of Jesus. I hope I have convinced you of those two points because now we move on to the final one, point three. A church cannot practically do church discipline when public worship services define the church membership. This is what I've been building to, and this is what we need to understand. None of this is worth anything if we can't land on this third point together, so you need to listen up or else you're not going to understand why our church has church membership to begin with. When the early church started, the church was small and the church was scattered, and it met in private homes. Now, they didn't want to be meeting in private homes because in the earliest part of Acts, where do you find the church meeting? They were meeting in the temple, in a public place of worship for God's people. They were meeting in the temple every day. Then they got kicked out. Then they began to be persecuted. So they started meeting in homes. And when Paul goes to a new city in the book of Acts, where does he start? He starts in the synagogue. He starts in a public place of worship. He doesn't start by knocking on people's doors. He starts in a public worship place. When he gets kicked out, then he is relegated to homes. The early church met in private homes, even though they wanted to be meeting in a public worship place to God. Now listen, the way you practice church discipline when you're meeting in a home is way different 
from how you have to practice church discipline when you're meeting in a public place. If you're meeting in a home and you want to practice church discipline, all you have to do to exclude someone, all you have to do to remove someone from your assembly is say, you're not allowed inside my door tonight. You want inside the door? You want to be a part of the, the family of God that's worshiping here? Repent, ask forgiveness, and do what's right. That's it. I mean, let's all imagine that we're not meeting in the church building, which is easy to do right now. Let's imagine that we are meeting down the road in my living room. It's about a quarter mile away. And let's imagine that one of the men meeting down the road in worship in my living room has an affair. You know, he cheats on his wife. Let's imagine, as absurd and as ridiculous as this is, as foolish as this would be, that in the midst of having this affair that everyone comes to learn about, he is unrepentant about it. He won't stop. He is now living in an adulterous relationship, and it is really bad. And so we realize we don't have a choice. 1 Corinthians 5, Matthew 18, Book of Revelation, Old Testament. We have to deal with the sin that is among us. And so we practice church discipline. And we do this by telling the guy, you cannot join us when we gather at my house. So if the guy shows up, it's my private home. I tell him, look, we told you, you can't be a part of this assembly. Repent and go away. This is a worship service for believers in my private home. You are doing something evil before the Lord. You are doing something evil to your wife. You're, we've called you to repentance privately. Then we've called you to repentance with two witnesses. Now we've call, called you to repentance publicly, and you won't stop. And you're not going to come in here and pretend that we're all in good fellowship with one another when you're, good, when you're doing this awful thing. So repent, stop having an affair, and you're not allowed in my house until you do. And the guy goes away because it's my private home. All we had to do to practice church discipline was deny him access to my home. Now, here's the difference between the early church meeting in private homes and you and I. We have the freedom to meet publicly in a place dedicated to worship. That's what this is. Now, I say that tongue-in-cheek now because our freedom is somewhat limited in some parts of the United States. But we have a freedom to meet in a public place of worship. It's still private property, but it is open to the public. And that's a good thing. Okay, that we're not relegated to someone's personal home. That's a good thing, that we can preach the gospel publicly. Okay, and, and that's what we want to do. However, it comes with a drawback. If we are meeting in a public gathering place, a building like the one that we're in now, then you can no longer identify the people of the church based solely upon their presence or attendance in a service. I mean, on a normal Sunday morning, there could be Buddhists over there, Muslims, Hindus, atheists, agnostics, and they're all welcomed to attend the public worship service because we want them all to hear the gospel. We want them all to see Jesus in the, in the worship of, of our God. We want them all to hear a message of salvation. We want them to hear the teaching from the Bible. So they're welcome to come and sit and listen. You know, they can even stand up and go through the, more, go through the motions of worship with us if they want. But... If we're going to allow unbelievers to gather with us in public worship, then we certainly cannot define the church by the people who are in attendance in worship, can we? There has to be, there has to be some distinction between the people who are here and are saved and are faithful followers of Jesus Christ and the people who are here simply publicly observing the gospel message. So we have to practice church discipline. How are we going to do it? In order to practice church discipline, 
you have to know exactly who the Christian committed people are in our local church and who isn't, who's just here listening, who's just here observing. I mean, we don't have guards at the door to bar entry to anybody who isn't saved. So that means we're going to have people who aren't saved here, which means we need some way of acknowledging those people, of knowing who those people are, who are saved and who are supposed to be maintaining a, 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 a holy and righteous life together with, who are supposed to be practicing church discipline with. Because if we're going to have atheists in our worship service, then we can't simply say that everybody here on Sunday is open for church discipline. So we're back to point one, aren't we? The church is the visible image of the Lord Jesus on the earth. The question is, how do we identify who our church in this place actually is? And this is why we have landed on this thing we call church membership. And it matters. Church membership is important. If we're going to know who, who is and who isn't a part of the church here, and clearly we have to know that or else church discipline isn't even possible, if we're going to know that, then we're going to have to have some record of the people who are committed Christians striving to serve the Lord with us. There's going to have to be some official record, some official acknowledgement that people know they have made, some commitment that people know they have made, that the pastors know they have made, because we cannot just include in our church membership account everyone who attends. Simply asking people, hey, are you baptized? That's not enough either. I mean, it wasn't enough for Peter to say, hey, you know, this person's baptized, so they're good. He wanted evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit, whether they were saved or not. Baptism is a sign of obedience, and it's hugely important. But telling me that you've been baptized is not the same as telling me that you are repentant, Christian striving to serve the Lord with us in New Paris, Ohio. For all I know, you've been baptized in the name of Scientology, or you've been baptized in some other false teaching. I have to know what you believe, that you understand the gospel, that you've committed to serving the Lord here, or else church discipline becomes impossible. So this is really important to understand. We cannot practice church discipline based on assumptions. And what about ministry? Imagine that we need someone to serve in ministry. How are we going to approach them about that if we don't even know if they claim to be a Christian? We have to have a record of who belongs to the church and who doesn't. That's why we have church membership. When you become a member of the church, you are signing off on a basic tenet of beliefs, you are committing to serve the Lord Jesus with us here in New Paris, and you are committed to maintaining a holy and righteous repentant life before the Lord, or else face church discipline. Now I'm going to tell you something really sad. The average Baptist church has about 300 members on its membership. 300 members on its membership, most of which have not set foot in the church for years. Some who have already died and remain on the membership. These churches are obviously not taking church discipline seriously. They are not taking it seriously that they are supposed to know whom they'll give an account for. Their official church membership roster means basically nothing. So I don't blame anyone who is coming to our church from a place like that who assumes, well, church membership has never been a big deal in any of the places I've been before, so why should it be a big deal here? Normal church memberships are filled with unbelievers, unrepentant people who have left long ago, people who have died, and people whom no one in the church today has ever heard of before. That is what a normal church membership roster looks like. But it's not right. 
That's not right. That wasn't the way that it always was, and that is not the way it should continue to be. That is not the way it is here in New Paris. Now, I have done my best here to plead with you to have a biblical understanding of all of this. And, and if you haven't joined our church, if you haven't joined a church where membership matters, then I am pleading with you to join this church. If you are a Christian, and if this is your church, then for crying out loud, join the church. So let's review. Number one, the church is supposed to be the visible image of Jesus in the world. We saw that. We saw that in the Bible. Number two, the church must be kept holy by church discipline. We saw that. Number three, because we need an account of who belongs to the church, church membership is necessary and important, and it should be maintained. In our church, we have membership classes and a little church membership booklet that pastors walk through with people who should become members of the church, who, who desire to become members of the church. And we walk through these little booklets, and, and in this booklet we explain the basics of salvation. We explain the basics of the church. We explain what church membership means. And then we sit down and we listen to the testimony. How, tell us your church history. When did you come to know the Lord? When did you come to serve the Lord for the first time? What are the churches that you've been in like? What's your spiritual journey that you've been on look like? Talk to us so that we know you, so that, so that we know who it is that we're dealing with. Don't just walk down an aisle, sign a card, get your name on a list, and we move on as if we've done an examination of these things. That's not okay. It's not okay, okay? Church membership is important. We cannot be the visible image of Jesus unless we maintain a holy and righteous standard of what that image should look like. We can't maintain a holy and righteous standard unless we know who's supposed to be upholding that standard around us and who isn't. So church membership is important. Well, that's the message for this week. It's good to review these things. I know that many of you in our church know these things already, but man, it's important and crucial that we don't lose track of them as the years go by. Let me close with a word of prayer. Father, I love you. I thank you for your people here of committed in church membership. I hope, Father, that this has been a refresher course for many of them, and I hope, Father, they'll use it as an opportunity to, to teach and instruct children who've never heard these things before. And maybe they were in the church when these things were taught on last, but it's been a long time. So, Father, help them to understand, to give their parents strength and wisdom to talk through these things because it's very simple. We need to represent you in the world. Help us to do that. We need to represent you in holiness and righteousness. Help us to do that. We can't let sin go on in our church without dealing with it as you've called us to deal with it. And we can't deal with sin in our church unless we know who the people of our church are. So Father, give us a high view of our church and church membership. Help us to love the church and its people. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.